We're diving back into our verse-by-verse series through the book of John. We took a four-week break. We did a series called Dragons. If you missed that, you can go catch up on our website. And now we're diving back into John. It's going to take us up to Easter, and we're going to be in John chapter 7. And this is such a rich chapter of the scriptures, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but to get us there, um, let me just ask you, does anybody, has anybody recently filled out a sweepstakes entry form? No. Okay. Do you remember, like, when I was a kid, that was a really big deal. I, I don't see them as much anymore, right? But uh, I think it was last year, year before, a couple of years ago, I got this phone call first thing in the morning, and uh, it was Publishers Clearinghouse. And they were on the way to my house with one of those big, giant checks. Yeah. And so this was really exciting, and um, I was skeptical, but hopeful, right? It was a little odd. The the area code was Jamaica, you know, so. (laughs) But they were on the way, you know, they had news cameras coming, and and I stayed on the line until they got to the part where they said, we just need you to run down to Western Union and send us a little (laughs) deposit to hold your check, however that works, right? (laughs) So just public service announcement, if you get one of those calls in the morning, it's a scam, okay? Um, It's not real. (laughs) But the fact that they do that means that some people fall for it, right? Like, they're not doing that just for fun. It's not just pranking. They're actually, people are falling for this, and... um, they're, they're scamming people and making money. And it actually, this thing plays off of a universal desire in our culture. And that universal desire is, I want it, and I want it now. Anybody identify? Yeah? I want it, I want it now. I remember... Um, when I was a kid, you know, the dream was to make it big. And uh, for some, like, it was like to be a rock star or a movie star and, you know, have the fame and success and the, and the money. For a lot of people, that was sort of uh, the dream. It's interesting now, you know, for my kids, it is actually um, becoming a YouTube star. They watch this one guy, Mr. Beast. If you have kids, you probably know who that is. He's like one of the most famous people on YouTube, and he's made millions of dollars with all these followers, and he gives away all this money and and is very uh, rich and famous, and he's made it. And so kids are like, I can just become like Mr. Beast if I'll start a YouTube channel, and my 10 subscribers will multiply. (laughs) And so like this is what kids want to do, right, if you're a young person in the room. But it's interesting because statistically, the chances of actually like making it on YouTube and becoming a YouTube millionaire are lower than like back when some of us were kids, the chances of becoming a movie star. Like you have a better chance to go to Hollywood and become a, a, a well-known movie star than you do to make it on YouTube just because there's so many people trying to do it, right? See, there's, I think there's this universal tendency in our culture to want the glory without the pain. Like, patience may be a virtue, but it's not really a virtue we want, is it? In fact, like, praying for patience is a very dangerous thing to pray for, right? (laughs) Praying for grace in the midst of the circumstance that you have to be patient in. um, Yeah, praying for patience. Some of us are like, yeah, I don't really think I want to do that, right? Uh, We respect stories of grit and determination, you know, the one that struggled and 
tried so hard and had pain and, you know, worked hard, followed by success, uh, we'd just rather win the lottery, wouldn't we? I mean, that's great for those people. But if it was me, I'd rather just, like, get it now. Um, I put in grass a number of years ago, and we put in sod, and it was amazing. It was like microwave grass, right? You just, like, instant. I didn't have to wait. Just, like, they were out there, and three hours later, it was beautiful. I like that. See, the, the problem with this kind of thinking is multiple, actually, a few things. One of them is we, we know this is not the way that life works, right? I mean, you can always find an outlier and find somebody and say, well, yeah, they, they made it, but, but for most people, it's not how life works. In fact, I read this interesting book by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers, and he looks at a bunch of people that we would say like were overnight successes, and what he shows is with all these people, he talks about the Beatles, he talks about Bill Gates and... and uh, these different people, and he shows like what we see as you know, we see when actually they have invested. He found on average these people had invested 10,000 hours into whatever it was they were working at, becoming good at. Um, Beatles played all these places before anybody knew who they were. Bill Gates spent hours and hours down in a basement programming, right, and learning how to code. And they'd spent 10,000 hours in order to get to the place where they became an instant overnight success. And we look at the, the success and think it's instant and overnight. That's just not the way the world works, right? In fact, in the series Dragons, uh, the Dragons Among Us that we just finished, we talked about a couple weeks ago the slavery that happens in many people's lives, the, just the, the, like the, the weight of overwhelming consumer debt so many people carry because they want it now, right? Because we haven't learned as a culture the, the muscle of deferred gratification. In fact, I bet some of you know someone who gained too much success too soon and didn't have the character to go with it. It's a common story in our culture, isn't it? And, and we all know the statistic, like, people who win the lottery on average are broke again within a few years. Like most people that end up just making it winning the lottery. Now, you and I, we're like, I'd still like to try. I think I can beat that statistic. <laughs> Anybody else or just me, right? But we know that. We know that. Or I think there's this more subtle idea in society around this, and it's the idea that especially gets uh, communicated to young people, and it's that you can, you can be it all, you can have it all now, girlfriend, right? You can have it all. You can be it all. Like, the things you want, you can, you can get this and you can have it now. And actually, I think this creates great weight and great pressure on young people to live up to a standard, whether it's, you know, in, in, in a career or a field or, or put family on hold or different things in order to achieve and it creates a great pressure in our, in our society. This idea, you can have it all, and you can have it now. And the biggest problem with this, I think, is if you're a follower of Jesus, it just isn't the way of our Savior. It's, in fact, it's antithetical to the gospel. And it's antithetical to the teachings of Jesus. And for many, what happens is, is the subtle expectation in their faith is that this is actually the way it faith is supposed to be. That when I put my trust in Jesus, life is going to all of a sudden magically transform and 
everything is going to be better. When the reality is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we put our faith in Jesus is often a long process of discipleship. Transformation is cooperation with the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. And it's hard a lot of times. And it, does, and it isn't immediate. And you come to faith, and guess what? Life isn't immediately fixed. Everything isn't rosy. But you're given grace in the midst of your circumstances. And so today what we're going to see in this passage in, in John, as we start John chapter 7, is we're going to see Jesus confront this kind of thinking and show us the way of the cross. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn on over to John 7. If you don't, it'll just be on the screen behind me as well. And I'm going to start out, I I don't always do this, but I'm going to start out just by reading the the passage that we're going to look at today, and then we're going to come back and highlight some things out of it. And so John chapter 7, verse 1 says this, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, At the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So, John chapter 7. This chapter... Verse 1 says, after this. And so just to remind you where we are at in in John chapter 6 and where we've just come from. Jesus has just done this incredible miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. He's walked on water. And and after this, um, you know, the people go crazy. They're ready to come and make him king. And then Jesus does this sermon which throws everybody for a loop throughout John chapter 6 where he talks about himself. He equates himself to the Passover lamb. And so he's talking about Passover, one of the great festivals in the Jewish faith. And he, he is saying, I am the Passover lamb, which is what John uh, points out in John chapter 1, right? Right at the very beginning, look, the lamb of God. And so Jesus kind of digs into that more. And he says, I'm the bread of life. If you want to find true life, like the true meaning of life and eternal life, he, he says these crazy things that sound crazy to him. Like, you have to eat my flesh. And everybody's like, whoa, this is too much. Because he's literally, the things he's saying, he's equating himself with the bread that came down to heaven, with manna, he's making himself equal with God. You know, the reason the Jewish leaders want to kill him isn't just because he did some kind things and taught everybody to love their neighbor better. 
and he, and he healed some people. It's because he continually, throughout his teachings, he continually put himself on an equal platform with God. His claim is to be God over and over again. And that's why they tried to kill him. That's why they want to kill him. And so we see this. Um, that's where we came from. And if you remember at the very end of this, disciples start peeling off, right? He has the crowd around him, and this is just too much for the crowd. A lot of the crowd peels off. And then he has this larger group of disciples that would follow him around, 100-plus people. And a lot of them begin to just peel off and leave. And then there's the inner core, the 12, that are sitting around, and they're watching the crowd peel off as Jesus teaches these things and says these things that were so hard for them to wrap their hearts and minds around. And they begin to peel off. And before you know it, Jesus looks around at his disciples, who I think he knows are thinking like, where's the back door? How do I sneak out of here? And he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? And then Peter makes this profound statement that I think Peter has such a spotty record every time he opens his mouth, right? I like him. I can identify with him. <laughs> sometimes he just gets it so right, and sometimes it's like, dude, that was... Like Jesus at one point says, get behind me, Satan. But in this moment, man, the Holy Spirit gives him this insight, and it's so powerful, and it's so profound. He looks at Jesus, and he says, um, Lord, where do we go? Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to know and understand that you are the Holy One of God. Like, where, what are we going to live for if we don't live for you? What has meaning? What has value? You've opened everything up to us. Where will we go? There's nothing worth more than following you. You've ruined us for the ordinary. And it's this powerful statement. And so Jesus has now this, this group, his disciples, and they're with him. But man, a lot of them peeled off. He lost a lot of the crowd. And at this point, the brothers come up. It says in John 2, it says, when, when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was, was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. I want you to leave Galilee, they said. They come to Jesus and, and they find him where he's ministering. Or perhaps Jesus goes home for a while to visit. And you see this idea that it's, it's the time of the Jewish festival of tabernacles. And this is a really big deal in the culture. You have to understand this to get what's happening here. And actually, um, John chapter 5, uh, the weekly routine or the weekly rhythm of Sabbath is seen as one of the Jewish festivals. John chapter 6 is all about the Passover and Jesus redefining the Passover, that this is really about me, that, that I'm the Passover lamb, that the, the manna, it's, it's about me. John chapter 7, Jesus is, is reorienting and redefining the Feast of Tabernacles, and saying, this is about me. John does this really interesting thing as he writes this, the Apostle John. He highlights this. And so the Jewish Festival of Tabernacles, this is um, also called Sukkot. That's the actual name, which means tents or, or temporary shelters or dwellings. And you see this in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Three times God instructs his people to celebrate, to actually, they're called the pilgrimage festivals, where they would come from the different corners of the country to the place that God chose, which became Jerusalem and the temples at Jerusalem. And they would come down, they were instructed to make a pilgrimage and come down three times a year. And Jesus actually did this. He came down and he would come down and probably all the way as he grew up as a child, he would come down. In fact, one of those times, 
he, he, he ditches his parents and stays behind. You remember that? And they find him later and they're like, what are you doing to us? And he says, I must be in my father's house. And he's like debating the, the people in the temple, right? And they're amazed by Jesus. As he's, he's like a 12-year-old kid. So he goes down three times. He, he celebrates, you know, as God instructed. One of them's Passover. The next one, 50 days later, is Pentecost. And then in the fall, that's in the spring, and we're getting ready. And it's, I think it's really cool that this passage chapter landed right here because we're celebrating this fall festival, but I'll show you over the next three weeks why it's going to point to something different, which is what we're getting ready to celebrate, which is the Passover and, and Easter, right, with the resurrection. Now, so Jesus celebrated this. They'd go down. But here's what you got to understand about this. This was like the most popular festival in Jewish culture. It was amazing. So God actually commanded them to set up basically tents or temporary dwellings. And they would have like branches and things and kind of set up a little fort. Does that sound fun? Like all the kids are in here. If the kids were in here, they'd be like, yeah, this sounds great, right? Those older were like, is there a king size bed in there? Hot showers, that's kind of my, my prerequisites for camping, right? I don't know about you, but I've gotten soft as I've gotten older, you know. My wife gives me a hard time about it. <laughs> so anyway, so they would actually, for eight days, they would camp out. And, and Jerusalem, I mean, there'd be thousands and thousands of people that would come into Jerusalem. And there would be like, they'd turn the whole thing into a tent city. Like everywhere, there's booths set up. And there's like, you know, tents and colorful things. And it's like festivities. And every night they would invite people into their tent. And they'd have this like big family dinner. And it was just a lot of fun. It was like country jam. Um, minus the steel guitars and drunk cowboys. Just people camping out everywhere. Like they turned the whole city into this thing, right? And every day the worshipers would, would gather in the temple. They would sing. They'd worship all night long. I mean, they knew how to party, right? This honoring thing of celebrating God. And they'd wave palm branches. And there was like, God commanded them actually to, to keep this festival. And the whole point was to rejoice in the Lord. Because this is around the time of the harvest, the fall harvest. And, and you would celebrate the faithfulness of God throughout the year. And he commanded them rejoice. In fact, in Deuteronomy, in this one point, like for people that lived too far away and couldn't bring their, their uh, animals or their grain, their tithe to the city, he says, well, sell it, trans trade it for silver. And then you go down and I want you to buy, you know, food and grain and great wine and other drink and have a great party. God honoring, to honor God. Celebrate have joy. This is going to be a joyous, joyous time. And that was the whole point of it. They would light the city up with these giant lanterns, four giant lanterns in the temple, and the whole thing would glow. Think of like going down Main Street at Christmas time and just how that would feel. And that's what it would feel like to the kids. Just this warmth and this joy and to celebrate. It was such a beautiful time. I mean, a week of family camp. And the purpose was all to rejoice in the goodness of God, to remember where, that he had been faithful to you, to remind you of the time when your ancestors had to live in tents in the wilderness for 40 years and God sustained them. It was also to remind you that this life is not all that there is, that we are sojourners here. 
just like the people, just like Abraham and Jacob was, they lived in tents. We, this, this life is transitory. You can't take it with you when you go. This life is not all there is and not all that's important. It was to remind them of that. It was to pass it on to the next generation. I mean, you know how important traditions are for kids, right? And communicating faith to your kids. That's why it's so important that, you know, when, around major holidays we celebrate, to, to bring it back and have those conversations with your kids about what's the meaning for, of the season, right? Why are we doing this? What are we celebrating? In fact, at the Home Point Center out here on, the, on your way out, there's some Easter devotionals. You can take one if you want. And uh, there's like 12 devotionals you can go through with your, to lead up to Easter with, with your kids. It's a powerful thing to do, to have those conversations. And think about like how important, how like into Christmas your kids get, right? And this was that for the culture. But it reminded them of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And not only that, it reminded them of the age to come. It reminded them that Messiah was going to come that you were supposed to live in the expectation of Messiah. Here's, here's what we learned about tabernacles. Um, I read this in one of my commentaries. It said this, Sukkot is to the other festivals what the Sabbath is to the other six days of the week. It foreshadows that great celebration of creation when the entire world will live in peace and brotherhood under the reign and rule of the righteous Messiah King. Just as the weekly Sabbath foreshadows the kingdom, Sukkot looks forward to that great age, a shadow of what is to come. And so through the prophets, we see that, you know, nations coming and, and celebrating the Feast of Booths together in the, in the age of Messiah. And, and so there was all this hope and all this expectation and all this that rose up in their hearts during this time. And three times a year they'd come, and this was one of the best. And the brothers are thinking, hey, this would be a perfect time for you to salvage your ministry. This would be a perfect time for you to go public. And so the brothers come to him, and that's why it says in, in verse 2, it says, his brothers said to him, leave Galilee, go to Judea. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. You're doing these things. Since you're doing them, show yourself to the world. Come on, why are you hanging out in the sticks? Why are you hanging out in Delta? <laughs> Sorry if you're from, I always pick on you. Why? Like, go, go to the big city. Right? Like, we're the big city. <laughs> go to the big city. Show yourself. Like, become somebody. This is your chance. And I think this is interesting, his brothers here. We don't often like, we don't always think of Jesus as having brothers. But he does, right? And they're actually his half-brothers, right? Because who's Jesus' father? This is an easy question, yeah. Okay. Jesus, the son of God, right? But these are the sons of Joseph. So, you know, we've got James, who becomes famous, ends up leading the church in Jerusalem. We've got... Um, we, scholars think Jude, the last, uh, one of the last books of the Bible, was written by one of Jesus' half-brothers. So you, his brothers come to him, but they don't believe in him. Can you imagine growing up with, uh, with Jesus as an older brother? Like some of you, you were not the good kid in the family, and you had that older brother or older sister, and they, you know, are younger or whatever. That was my younger brother. He looked at all the dumb things I did and then corrected course. He was sneakier, though. 
he was much sneakier. Mom and dad just didn't know everything. He was better at, like, he was sneakier, right? But some of you, you know that older brother that just, like, they always did it right, and you were always being compared to. Can you imagine with Jesus? I mean, the perfect, sinless son of God. Like, and his mom, Mary, is probably always telling him, Jesus is going to do great things. The angel said this to me, right? And the brothers are like, yeah, mom, whatever. <laughs> and then, but I think there's this, this thing in their hearts, too, where actually they had a great hope for Jesus. Because what happens if your brother becomes a super successful, rich, and famous person, and especially if he becomes like a king? You're pretty important, aren't you? You got it made. And so I think as, as they grew up with their brother and they're like annoyed because he's the perfect brother and, you know, all that. But at the same time, they had all this hope in him actually becoming something and doing something. And then, you know, he's doing these amazing miracles. There's the whole water into wine thing. And then there's, they're hearing all these stories of what the things Jesus is doing. And so they know he's a holy man. They know he is, is powerful. They know there's something special about him. And yet their hope is that he is going to, you know, come in and rally the troops and become a great leader. And it's going to change their lives for the better. And all of a sudden, chapter six happens, right? And Jesus says some very hard things. And they're like, Jesus, you're doing such amazing things, and then you had to go blow it by saying this. I mean, Jesus was saying some things that in their mind, see, they didn't believe in him, not the way that John's talking about. In their mind, Jesus is speaking things that are verging on blasphemy. They can't wrap their minds around it. And so they're like, Jesus, here's your chance to rescue your career. See, two things about his brothers. They, they want him to be a public figure. Their definition of success was different than Jesus' definition of success, right? We see they didn't believe in him as Lord, but as a celebrity, as a powerful man, as a political figure. That's what they were looking for out of their brother. That was their definition of success. And let me just say, our de if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a different definition of success than the rest of the world. Like our definition of success is very different, or should be. And it centers on, God, what's your will? God, what do you have for my life? What, do you, what have you put me here to accomplish? God, what is the important thing for me to do in this time, in this season of my life? Where, where do you see me making an impact for your kingdom? How can I serve? How can I love others? How can I live for you? How can I point people towards you, Jesus? And you know what? Um, Jesus says the first will, will become last, right? And very different than the idea of society. See, they, were, they, they understood what it meant to become powerful and important. Jesus said, um, you know, the, uh, the leaders, everybody knows what it looks like to be a leader and lord it over other people. Not so with you, my followers, that you're here on the behalf of others to leverage your strength and power on behalf of others. That you have a very different definition of success. And sometimes that looks very different at the end of your life than what the world thinks of as success. But you will stand before your, your Savior and hear the words, well done. 
because she lived up to his definition of success in your life. Man, that should be the heart and the goal of every believer. And that's what we talked about last week is what's your reference point, right? As you look, as we tend to look around to our left or our right and, and draw our cues of, you know, am I doing okay in life? Am I making it? Am I a success? As we try to base that on, on what other people are doing and the, and the standards they have or what it means to be successful in our society or have it, you know, have wealth, all these things, it just creates all this anxiety and no peace because there's never an end to that, is there? There's never a spot where you experience rest. And actually, when you learn to walk out the purposes of God in your life, you actually experience peace because you're looking at a different standard. Your reference point is set in your identity in him. As him, as your heavenly father, as you as a child of God that's here to fulfill his purposes. And you can just breathe a little bit. So they want him to be a public figure. And I think it's also interesting they didn't believe in him. Like, until after the resurrection, they didn't believe in him. They didn't get it. They didn't understand the role he played. Like, there were some that believed. They were his disciples, but not his brothers. But it wasn't until after his death and resurrection, even though they grew up with the most perfect person, they still didn't believe until after the cross and after the resurrection. Which to me makes sense because like literally what would your brother have to do to convince you he was God? But they didn't believe. And I think the point behind this, and this is something we need to understand, is we have this idea in our culture that you can just, uh, you know, for Christians, that you can just be a really kind, good person, be nice to your neighbors, you know, don't kick their cat when it comes into your yard, even though... You can just be a, a good person, a kind neighbor, and maybe wear a good Christian T-shirt and, you know, put a fish on your bumper sticker, you know, one of those. And they'll just kind of through that find Jesus. You know how people come to faith in Jesus? It's through the proclamation of the cross and the resurrection, through the proclamation of the gospel. As people open their mouths and share, this is what Jesus has done in, the, in my life. This is what the gospel means. That we are separated from, from God, but Jesus came to bring us life, to pay the penalty of our sin. And see, I think it's possible for followers of Jesus, to, for many people, we have you know, this phrase we use, my circle, my responsibility. And it's so easy just to think of that as, it's just, I'm just going to be nice and kind. Now, that's a good thing, because you can drive people away from Jesus if you're not that, right? So that's a good thing, but we tend to stop there. We love this old saying by, uh, I think it was St. Francis, that, you know, preach the gospel always when necessary, use words. That's a, there, it's powerful, because it means, you know, live your life in such a way that people can live Jesus. But for many of us, we have translated that to mean, whew, so I never have to actually open my mouth and share or say anything about Jesus. I can just sort of live and be a good person. You are here. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've put your trust in him, you are saved because someone spoke truth in the gospel to you. Someone cared enough to pray for you, maybe to invite you to church, and somebody proclaimed the gospel to you. And your heart responded, 
to the Father drawing you, and you trusted in him. And as a follower of Jesus, you are called to live that out. You are called to overcome your fear. Remember, like nobody talked about Jesus at the end of it. Nobody was willing to say what they thought because of the fear of the leaders. We read that, and we're not going to get that far as we go back through this. They, they didn't open their mouths because of fear, right? So they didn't believe in him till after the resurrection. Verse 6, Jesus says this. He says, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. And there's this interesting thing. He's like, hey, guess what? If you, if you only go along with the thinking of culture and society, of course you're never going to offend anybody, right? And I'm telling you, this is a huge thing now in our culture. And the tendency of somebody, like, there's so many people that are so cautious about anything you say. And it's good to be cautious and wise, right? And don't just fly off the handle. But so many people that don't say truth, don't speak truth, because you're afraid to get canceled, right? Because that's the society we live in. And this is such a big deal. Jesus says, hey, of course they're going to hate me because I'm speaking the truth. I'm calling them out on, on sin. I'm speaking the truth of who I am as the son of God, the, you know, the second person of the Trinity. And they can't handle that. So of course they're going to hate me. You're never pushing back on anything. You're just going along with the flow. You know, sometimes if you actually open your mouth and speak about Jesus, it will be a little awkward. But you know what? Awkward won't really hurt you. Like, you're going to survive awkward. When, when you have that opportunity and you feel like the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life to, to ask your neighbor, to, can I pray for you in the situation that you're in? And can I share how Jesus has moved in my life in, in this area? And you'll feel that and you'll be terrified. <laughs> like your mouth will be all dry. You'll be terrified. But when you actually allow him to move through you and say, okay, I'm not going to be silent, but I'm going to share Jesus in this moment. Something powerful and profound will happen. And guess what? It might be a little awkward. In fact, if you share the truth of Jesus, you know, the gospel, um, it's called a stumbling block, the rock that makes people stumble, because the gospel is offensive. It's not you can be it all, you can have it all, you go. It's you're not all of it. You're a fallen, broken sinner, and you need a Savior. But his grace is here to offer that to you salvation, forgiveness, life as a free gift that you have to receive. And it's offensive in our culture. He says, I, I, I'm here and I testify. I testify. And he says, my time is not yet here. And see, this is so profound. Because Jesus looks at his brothers and say, hey, you have an agenda. You have something you want and you want right now. You want to be next to somebody very powerful. And I have a kingdom, and I am initiating a kingdom, but it's going to come in a very different way than you're anticipating. It's not going to look like me rallying an army and driving Rome out and returning Israel right now to this superpower status in the world. It's not going to look like that. 
It's going to come and it's going to grow and it's going to spread all around this world as people's hearts embrace and follow the one true king. He says, but you want it right now. I want it in my father's way in his time. And his brothers, actually, it's so interesting because they, they offer, they tempt Jesus, essentially, or they're trying to get Jesus to do the same thing Satan is when he tempts Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of the ministry. You read that in Mark or in Matthew. As Jesus goes in, and, and Satan actually directly tempts him. And he's trying to get him to, to, to get the results that he wants. And he knows, you know, that he's been promised as the messianic king, but to do it my time and my way. So he says, throw yourself off the height of the tower of, of the temple in front of everybody. We know, like, the angels are going to catch you. You're the son of God. You're not going to die. Just throw yourself down. He's trying to get, you know, you know, then you'll be a superstar. Then everybody will see it. If you just go do it my way, Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You can get it now. You don't have to go through that. But Jesus says, no, my father has a way for me. The will of my father looks different. And, and he says, I'm not going up to this festival. This festival, this party, this joy, all the hope for the arrival of the messianic age. Yeah, sure seems like an opportune moment. But there's a different festival coming up in six months that I have to go through first. It's the Passover. And I have to be the Passover lamb. I have to give my life. Oh, the Feast of Tabernacles will be fulfilled. Don't you wait. Don't you worry. But first comes the cross. And see, for us, so often, it's like we want it now versus waiting on God's way and God's time. We want even good things oftentimes, like godly things, and we want it right now. But God has a different plan and a different purpose. So he says, for you, any time will do. Like, let's just get this done, right? I, I struggle with patience. I don't know if any of the rest of you do. Of being patient for God to work things out in my life and his time. And the constant temptation is to try to, like, strong arm this thing and take our lives into our own hands and make it work. And, and it's because it's everything that the culture is saying to do, right? You know, you can have it all. You can have it now. You can be it all. And yet you find all this inner turmoil because you're striving. And there's a peace in doing things in God's timing that comes. The question is, are you okay with serving where God has you now? For so many people I've seen, until you get okay with the place God has you in and, and, become, and find a peace and a rest in that, I've, I've seen in so many people's lives, it's not until after they get there that God actually brings the thing into their life that they're hoping for. Paul says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. As I follow God, I've learned, you know, I, I can get, a, get by with a lot. I can get by with a little. It doesn't really matter because my, my purpose, my success comes in him. My rest is in him. My hope is in him. Are you okay with God, with what God has for you? I think in our society, especially for young people, there's so much pressure like to have the, the full career path right now and, and to have like, you know, the perfect family and all this. And some of you, you're in your 20s and you really feel this. 
And you're wondering, like, should we have kids or wait till later or all this kind of stuff? Because there's this pressure that you have to have it all and you have to have it all now and you have to have a certain level of house and car and success that's perceived and all of this. And if you can learn to understand life in the seasons and rhythms of life that, that God gives, I think you will find much more peace in life. You know, something we did at the beginning of our marriage um, before we got married is we just decided, hey, we didn't know exactly when we were going to have kids. We were going to wait a couple years. I drug my feet like five years. Um, but one thing we did was we decided before we got married, we said, hey, when we have kids, and when we have kids, we, we want to have the option. My wife wanted to have the option of being able to stay home with them when they were young. And so we said, we're just going to build our life um, so that we choose to live off one income. And then everything that you make over here is either fun money or savings. Or like I told you a couple weeks ago, digging out a dumb credit card debt. We had to do some of that. And you know what? Like, here's, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that's for everyone. But that's what we felt led to do. And you know, we sacrificed. There were a lot of things we, did, we chose not to have or do right now in this season because we were looking forward to, to a different goal, a different definition of success in that season. And guess what? I have no regrets over that. I don't, I'm not saying, like, that's your path. Pray about it. See what God, where God leads you. But if you're a young person, this constant pressure of being it all, doing it now, having it all in this time, it will put an unbearable burden on you. And I think if you choose to follow always the voice of what society says, you're going to look back for many of you later in life and there'll be regret because of the things you miss that you can't get back. And so just pray about that. See what God would say to you about that. See, the other reason we can wait on God is because this life is not all that there is, right? Like, if this life is all that there is, we understand, like, eat, live, drink today, because, you know, tomorrow we all die. You understand why people would just go after everything, all the pleasure now. But part of the, the meaning of the Feast of the Tabernacles is to remind you, you know, through these tents, that you're just a sojourner here. You're a pilgrim here. This, this life is not all that there is. And yet this life bears great weight for eternity. That's what gave Paul the ability in Romans, you know, the verse we all love and put on mugs, like all things work together for good. For those that love God, amazing verse, you know, he's working for the good in our lives in the midst of even the hard things. But what comes right before that, he says, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And see, life isn't always easy. We don't always get now what we want now. But that's okay, because this life isn't all that there is. If your life doesn't look like the picture of success that, you, that maybe your dad or your mom tried to put on you, or maybe you had, you know, you got it, absorbed it from YouTube, or you absorbed it from TV or culture, and you're looking at your life and it's like, it's not the picture, and yet you've been faithful in serving and living out what God's called you to do, guess what? <laughs> that success, the ripples will make much more difference over eternity. You will not regret the choice to follow God and the thing he's calling you to do and live for him.
You can wait on the timing of God and be patient for the timing of God in your life. Because this life is not all that there is. Would you stand? As we close, I just have three questions for you. As we close in prayer, as I begin praying, I'm going to invite those that maybe are in our ministry team, um, prayer team, would you come forward in case, you know, after, after uh, I'm done praying, uh, if you need prayer for anything uh, related to the message or not, why don't you come up and get some prayer before you head out? But let me ask you three questions. First one is this, where is fear holding you back from sharing Jesus? Is there a person or a situation in your life where you know God keeps tugging on your heart and it so, feels awkward, but you know that he's calling you to like bring Jesus into the conversation? Is there an area? Second one is this, where does your agenda need to be realigned with the purposes of God? What has society been laying on you that you know isn't, doesn't line up with what God actually wants for your life and what the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you? And how do you need to realign your life to his purposes? And the third is this, where are you struggling to be patient with God's hand in your life? You know, some of the things that feel so insignificant now, looking back, will be some of the most significant things that God did in your life. Are you being faithful in this season and just saying, God, this is hard right now, but I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to be patient to wait on you and your timing in my life, to wait on that relationship, to wait on that thing you want to do, to be faithful and serve in this season. Where is fear holding you back from sharing Jesus? Where does your agenda need to be realigned with the purposes of God? And where are you struggling to be patient with God's hand in your life? Let me pray for you. Father, I want to say thank you for my friends. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you showed us the way of the cross, that you were willing to wait on God's way and God's time. And because of that, you became the perfect sacrifice for us so that we can have relationship and become a child of God. Lord, let us walk that out in this life. Let us wait on you. And let us make a big impact in the lives of those around us. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.